Well, good evening, everyone. I think we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, thank you uh, very much for, for being with us uh, uh, this afternoon. Uh, I'm really uh, pleased to welcome David Leach uh, to the law school, or I should say back to the law school. Um, David is a, a graduate of, I think, the class of 1985 and has had a very distinguished uh, uh, career uh, and a very interesting career that I'm looking forward to hearing more about uh, this evening. Um, after graduating from law school, he clerked first with Judge Wilkinson, and then he went off to clerk on uh, the US Supreme Court with uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist. Um, after that, uh, he has had a, I think it's fair to say, three-part career. Um, several uh, years ago, some of you may know, we started something called the Tri-Sector Leadership uh, Program, which is a group of students that uh, come together from Darden, the business school, from the law school here, and also from the Batten uh, Public Policy School, where uh, students are selected and they, they get together in a variety of different uh, settings to try to bring insights from business, law, and public policy together to work on um, uh, on, on, on leadership challenges. Um, I think David could uh, do all three of those at the same time because his career has really spanned all three corners of that uh, triangle. Um, after his clerkship, he worked uh, uh, at a law firm, uh, became partner at what is now Hogan Levels. Um, he's also spent time in government service, working uh, with the George W. Bush administration, with the FAA, and also with the Department of Justice, and more recently, uh, he's moved over to the world of business. And uh, he spent 10 years with Ford, and then uh, a little under five years ago, uh, moved over to Bank of America, where he is now the uh, global general counsel at Bank of America, which basically means he's responsible for all of the, um, the legal functions uh, related to, to the bank. Um, please join me in welcoming David Leach. So we thought it would be fun uh, to do a little bit of a more informal uh, uh, question and answer setting uh, and, and give all of you uh, a chance to, to ask um, some questions. I've got some questions that a number of students have uh, pre-submitted, um, so I'm going to start to, to work through those. Um, but if there's something we're talking about that uh, sparks another uh, question or topic or insight um, that you want to bring up, then don't, don't feel compelled to wait until the end of the discussion. I will try to reserve about uh, 15 minutes or so uh, near the end for, for your questions. Um, but if there's something we're talking about that uh, you know, is, 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 is very relevant to what's on your mind, then please feel free to just throw up your hand, and, uh, and, and we're happy to get your questions earlier if, if you like. Um, David, I want to start by asking you uh, about your favorite job. You've uh, clearly done a number of different things at, at, at many different types of, of uh, organizations. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what your favorite position has been and why? Well, um, thank you. Um, I guess there's no chance that my current boss will ever listen to this, so I can be completely honest. Um, no, I've, look, I've had some great... Um, some great opportunities. I think the, um, I'd have to say the, the favorite, best, most exciting job was, was working for the, um, for the Bush administration as Deputy White House Counsel. Um, you know, I had an office in the West Wing. I had meetings in the Oval Office. I mean, it's sort of hard to, hard to top that in terms of being interesting every single day um, and presenting 
you with the opportunity to work on kind of the issues that you're reading about on the front page of the paper every day. So while there are a lot of things to like about a lot of the jobs I've had, clerking was certainly a wonderful experience. Got me more deeply into thinking about the law than my more recent jobs. Um, but in terms of day-to-day -day excitement, I think working in the White House would be hard to top. I want to ask you a little bit about uh, transitions, because I think uh, moving from one area to another area to yet another area, and even within business and, and, and within uh, government service, you've, you've spent time at, at several different organizations. Um, how, how did all these transitions happen? I mean, as you've moved sort of from one chapter professionally to another chapter, was this part of a, a plan that you had, or was this something where um, you know, each of these experiences just sort of came along. I mean, talk us through, if you could, a, a little bit about the transition progression and how this all happened. Yeah, it's, um, it was not part of a master plan. I think um, one thing I would say is, and I had, I had a master plan, by the way. It just didn't include going to any of the places that I ended up in. So I think one of the, uh, the most um, important things to keep in mind is to be open to the opportunities that come your way, even if they don't appear to be you know, exactly what you thought you were going to do next. Um, and the transitions took place really just um, by virtue of having mentors and colleagues and people that I trusted and who cared about me suggest that I do things along the way that um, planted seeds in my mind or opened up doors for me. Um, you know, we talk a lot about um, at the bank and elsewhere, we talk about sponsorship and mentorship of uh, younger uh, attorneys and other professionals, and um, I think I've been very fortunate to have sponsors and mentors along the way. So, for example, um, when I was working as a very young lawyer at Hogan and Hartson after I'd clerked for two years, uh, um, I had a, a partner who at the time felt like a senior partner, but he wasn't, he wasn't older than I am now. Um, but he when um, George H.W. Bush was elected, um, this partner, uh, you know, he knew I was Republican, he knew I'd clerk for conservative judges, and he was a liberal Democrat, and he was a great friend of mine, and he came to me and he said, look, he said, I think you should think about going into the government, because he said, when I came to Washington, I thought I was going to, you know, go, be able to go work for the government, and in the time I've been in Washington, he was saying, there was only one period of time when there was a Democratic administration over the course of the past, whatever it was, 16 years, and it was the four years of the Carter administration. He said, and I wasn't really in a place in my life when I could do it, and I wasn't really wild about the Carter administration. He said, and I feel like I've just never had the chance to do what I really wanted to do. And he said, you should seize this opportunity if you find the right position to, to go in and, you know, you can always come back, but look for something that's good in the administration and take advantage of it. And, you know, I think, I like to think that was against his self-interest because he was losing an associate that was working for him. Um, but he was thinking about, you know, me as a, as a kind of a, a, a younger him and, and what he felt he had missed in his career and had the opportunity to um, offer me that advice. And, and so I listened. Um, sometimes things just happen by sheer circumstance. When I was working in the White House um, in 2000. Um, early 2005, after the president was reelected, an old colleague of mine who had gone a year or so earlier um, to Ford Motor Company to head their government affairs office called me out of the blue and said, hey, um, 
we're going to be looking for a general counsel. Would you have any interest? And, you know, there was no headhunter involved. There was no, um, there wasn't really even a long process because the guy whose name is on the building, Bill Ford, interviewed me and had his head of HR interview me and they offered me the job. So it was very fortunate, just this colleague of mine who, you know, had left, liked what he was doing, saw an opportunity, thought of me, could have thought of a hundred other people and it worked out. So I think there's a lot of right place, right time, and there's a lot of being open to opportunities that you didn't necessarily expect to come along, but to say, okay, is this the right thing for me? I didn't, I don't think I'd ever been in the state of Michigan before. I, went and interviewed, but you know, I moved my family based on the opportunity that was there. So I think it's just a question of being open to, to what comes along. And, and would you attribute uh, your transition to your current position as being in, in a similar vein? Was it an opportunity that came through or was it based on some past relationships that you had built or a combination of both? I got a cold call from a headhunter that I'd never met before. Um, and I, you know, I was kind of ready and open to it. Um, I had been at Ford for um, a little more than 10 years at that point, and so, and I was turning 55, and I thought, okay, I can do this for 10 years, I can do it 15 years, I can do it for 20 years, but do I have another sort of fun transition in me? Um, and, you know, this call came along, and I explored it, and it, it worked out. I want to ask a little more about uh, your day-to-day -day life in your current position as, as well, sort of continuing on that. Um, you know, one of the things that I think a number of students uh, think about and wonder about is uh, when, they, when, when and if they were able to move into some sort of a general counsel role, um, how would their life change? And, you know, especially as, as, as they no move up. No timesheets. <laughs> especially as you move up the seniority. I mean, I, you know, said differently, can you give us a little bit of an insight into what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis? Are you working with... Um, different banking regulations? Are you working with general corporate matters? Are you working with corporate strategy? I mean, you know, or all of the above. I mean, how, how does your day-to-day -day and even your week-to-week -week, um, schedule change? Yeah, it's really all of the above. Um, and to some extent, the, the, the role that I have as general counsel at Bank of America or at Ford Motor Company is much different than the role that somebody would have at a you know, small, recently public or not quite public company. If you're in a shop with, you know, you're the general counsel and you have 10 lawyers reporting to you, you're doing a lot of day-to-day -day legal work. You have to know um, what's coming through and you have to be expert in certain areas of the law um, that are germane to that particular uh, client that you have. I have 500 lawyers that, that are in my legal department. Um, so I, I'm relying on their expertise. I am a general counsel in the truest sense of the word. Um, and, I, you know, that doesn't mean that I don't dig into legal issues, but the day-to-day -day sort of decision-making and legal advice giving is done by all those arms and legs of the 500 lawyers spread around the world. So what I spend my time doing is really, I, I think of it in three, three buckets. Um, one is um, what you would think of looking at hard legal issues, making judgments, giving advice, um, strategizing about litigation, thinking about transactions, thinking about um, you know, where the risks are and working with the other management team members to identify and mitigate those risks. So for example, this morning before I came up here, I was on the phone for about an hour with two of my lawyers and our outside counsel handling a major piece of litigation. We were talking about 
the discovery, how it was going, what the motions practice was like, what we thought the settlement prospects were, et cetera, et cetera. Just, you know, core basic litigation advice. Um, the second part of my job, and it's a bigger part of my job than I would have expected, is um, being a manager of a department. Uh, I have, as I said, 500 lawyers, probably an equal number of other professionals, whether they be investigators, legal assistants, um, you know, administrative support staff. And so I'm running a thousand person department with a, you know, sort of greater than half a billion dollar budget. So I do personnel matters, reorganization, budget meetings, um, you know, law firm relationships, sort of being, just being a manager of a big department. Um, so again, today, before I came up here, I had a, a meeting with one of my lawyers, one of my deputies, and um, two of my HR partners, where we talked about reorganizing one of our practice groups because one of our attorneys is retiring. And so, okay, we had a lot of moves to make and it was time to make them and we went through them and he spent the day announcing to people what their new roles were gonna be. So that was another part of it. And then the third part is being a member of the management team of Bank of America and that's everything. With, so the rest of my day today was sitting in a five hour strategic planning meeting where you know, we didn't talk about I don't think we talked about anything that you would call a legal issue. We might have talked about things that had legal implications. I obviously had to be listening and aware and issue spotting in case anything came up. It's not to say that I was silent because there were no pure legal issues. My boss expects me as a member of the management team to be you know, another voice in the room, not just staying in my lane, recognizing what my lane is, but also being willing to offer my thoughts about, you know, gee, I don't think this makes sense or I think this would be received poorly by our directors or whatever it might be. Um, so I really, those are the big buckets, doing sort of practicing law, managing the legal department, and being a member of the management team at the bank. So, so that's a perfect uh, transition to a question that I wanted to ask. Um, as some of the students uh, here may know, uh, uh, and, and, and David may be too modest to, to say this, uh, Bank of America has done really, really well strategically over the last uh, four or five years. Um, there was an uh, article even today, I think, in one of the, the newspapers that uh, put a graph up of uh, uh, three of the, the, the big four banks. It was uh, Bank of America, it was Wells Fargo, and it was uh, J.P. Morgan Chase showing uh, both the, the revenue growth and the net earnings growth over, uh, over the last three or four or five years. And uh, it, it really was, was, was very, very striking um, to see, uh, especially on the earnings front, uh, how strong uh, Bank of America has been uh, performing for its investors. Um, some of you may have seen uh, in the news, I think it was just last week or the week before, there was a, a very positive earnings announcement for, uh, I guess it would be the third quarter. And uh, the stock was up, I think, you know, last I checked, 2 3% even today, right, on sort of sustained um, uh, sustained growth prospects. So I guess I'm, I'm, I'm curious, given your involvement, uh, especially on the corporate strategy side of things, uh, what, do you, what do you attribute this uh, recent success, or maybe it's a, you know, continuing a, a longer-term success, but you know, what, what's, the, um, what's the strategic reason that you think explains uh, the, the performance of the bank in recent years? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, so a little bit of history, um, you know, in the financial crisis, um, Bank of America was, you know, one of the banks that, um, you know, got itself into a lot of hot water, for lack of a better term. 
Um, just before the financial crisis, the bank bought um, countrywide uh, home loans, which was a very troubled, as it turned out, very troubled uh, mortgage originator. Um, in, in the midst of the financial crisis in September of 2008, sort of that one weekend when all the big decisions were made, the bank bought Merrill Lynch, which was about to fail by all accounts. Um, it was asked to come in and look at rescuing Lehman Brothers. So like, I might have this wrong, I wasn't there, but I think literally like on a Friday, the government said, can you come look at rescuing Lehman Brothers? And by like Sunday night, they said, well, no, but we'll take Merrill Lynch. Um, you know, which is a lot to swallow, right? So I think for the first five years after the financial crisis, sort of, you know, the crisis passed, there was just a lot of cleanup to do, just a whole lot of cleanup to do. Big settlements with the government, big settlements, private litigation, um, and frankly, poor relationships with many of our customers through things like policies on overdraft fees and other things. And of course, Dodd-Frank was passed. There was a huge um, regulatory burden that um, came about in the banks. So there's just a lot of work to be done. Cost a lot of money, a lot of systems to be updated, a lot of systems to be merged from all these things that got um, pushed together in the financial crisis. So some of it was just, you know, it, some of the more recent success was just kind of not having all that to do. But I think more importantly, our CEO, um, Brian Moynihan, um, who is also a lawyer, um, uh, he, he's been there, he's been the CEO for um, 10 years, so he's been there kind of through most of this. He established um, a really a mindset, um, and I don't know when it started, because as I say, I've only been there four years, so, but it was certainly in play before then, um, that he called responsible growth. And he has kind of four tenets of responsible growth. First, we grow and win in the market, no excuses. Second, we grow within our customer-focused framework. So we're gonna think about the customer first. Second, we're gonna grow within our risk framework. So we have a very well-articulated sort of policy on what risk we'll take and what risk we won't take. And fourth, we have to grow in a sustainable manner. We don't just wanna kind of make a dollar today and have it you know, pay three to the government five years from now, because um, it's not sustainable. And I think we really, and that has permeated kind of all the decision-making at the institution. Uh, people will now say, look, um, our head of investment banking, um, he, he's famous for saying, we used to think that every dollar was a good dollar. And now we know that not every dollar is a good dollar. We don't necessarily want every dollar that we can make because it's not consistent with the way that we want to grow. And it has driven um, a mindset where there are risks that our competitors are willing to take that we're, we're not willing to take. And sometimes you do leave profit on the table, but over the long run, our customer satisfaction has gone up, our business is growing. Um, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about reducing costs. Frankly, that's a big part of the equation, um, which is there is opportunity to do that when you bring together all those businesses. Um, so I think that's real, but it's really this mindset that says we're gonna, we wanna grow. I mean, that's what businesses have to do, but you have to grow in a responsible, sustainable, customer-focused way. There's been a lot of talk lately about uh, technology and financial technology and how you know, s some of the uh, recent developments might be revolutionizing um, some areas of the financial services sector. Is that something that you spend a lot of time thinking about or is that not front and center for you? Oh yeah, we spend a lot of time thinking, and money, um, thinking about and, and developing technology. The bank will spend $3 billion a year on, on technology. Um, and it's, you know, we're, I mean, I 
don't want to sound like a walking advertisement for Bank of America, but we've won lots of awards for, you know, best mobile app and all that kind of stuff for banking. There's a lot of new entrants and fresh competitors in the market, you know, um, I don't know, you all probably know them better than I do, um, Betterment and SoFi and, um, you know, even Venmo, which is old by now, but, you know, it was, it challenged the way payments are done. Um, so we're constantly looking at that. We, we have the abil ability to deploy things at scale. So the things that we can, you know, we can spend money on and deploy them at scale. Um, we can spread the cost through a much, you know, a much bigger base. So, um, I, no, I think there's a lot that's going to continue to develop in the technology space. Um, even, you know, how do you use the cloud, for example? Um, you know, do you use a private cloud? Do you use, uh, do you use somebody else's cloud? Is it, is it a shared, you know, public cloud? What are the, um, the protections around that? We keep, you know, some people, some of people's most important um, information, other than I think your health information, you want your financial information to be, you know, rock solid, as solid as you want the money that you put into a bank. You want the information that you've entrusted us with to be um, in that vault in the same way. Um, and so we, we do think about it a lot and pay a lot of attention to um, what's going on in the marketplace. And interestingly enough, this may be of interest, we have a, developed a huge patent portfolio having to do with financial uh, services technology. Um, and so it, I first noticed this when I was at Ford Motor Company, which you can imagine an automotive company, um, you know, spends a lot of time and effort protecting its intellectual property. We would go every year and look through kind of what our competitors were doing and what else was happening in the marketplace. And five or six years ago, my team said to me, Bank of America is, is, seems to be getting a lot of patents. They're coming up high on the list, you know, higher than Amazon, Google, whatever, in terms of patents granted in a given year. We should look at what's going on over there because they're really spending a lot of time on, on inventing and protecting the IP. Um, so it's, it's a concerted effort to make sure that we stay ahead of the game. That's interesting. I wouldn't have expected that. Um, we were talking a little bit before the session about how the law school has changed uh, since David was a student here. He said, this building wasn't here. Uh, that was still the business school over there, and we hadn't connected it yet. Um, but one of the other things I think that's changed since, um, since you've graduated is the, um, the creation and the growth of our law and business program. Um, as, as, you, as you may know, we have hundreds of students every year now that are taking um, courses in accounting, in corporate finance, in corporate strategy, in, in various leadership areas. Um, I don't think uh, any of that was, was, was offered here when, when, when you were a student. So I guess my question is, um, you know, to what do you attribute your, um, your, your business knowledge and your business acumen? Was that something that you sort of picked up on the job, or how, how did you, you know, sort of get to, to the level of expertise that you have now in the business world? Well, as a former litigator, I have to say you're assuming facts, not in evidence, but um, the, I, I, they may have offered some of those courses. I certainly didn't have any interest in them at the time, so, um, you know, and there was some, the JD MBA program existed and all that kind of stuff, so Look, I think um, one of the fun things about uh, that job progression that you outlined at the beginning is I, I get to learn something new every day. And one of the really, I think the keys to, to being able to go into a new job and frankly to, to, to stay in jobs and continue to grow and develop is to admit what you don't know. It's okay not to know everything. Um, I, when I went into Bank of America, when I went to interview, um, the CEO, Brian Moynihan, 
you know, we had a great conversation, and I said to him, look, at the end, I said, look, I don't really know that much about banking regulation. Um, I don't know the basic structure of, you know, federal banking statutes. I mean, I can learn all that. He says, I have a lot of people who know banking law inside and out, and you can rely on them, and, you know, you bring what you bring to the table. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's, that's, um, that's really key. And a lot of what you do in, in corporate America, in big public companies, a lot of the legal issues are common, like, you know, SEC filings. Well, what does your 10Q have to say? What does your 10K have to say? What's, you know, fair disclosure? Um, you know, what are the insider trading rules? What's the corporate, you know, Delaware corporate law? What do your, what's your board have to do? What are the routines of shareholder meetings? All those things. It doesn't matter what your business is. A lot there's a lot in common too. So um, once you learn those skills, they're transferable to other contexts. One of the premises I think of our law and business program here is that over the last uh, couple decades, the 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 world of law and the world of business has become much more interconnected. And in order to be a successful uh, executive, you need to know some law. And in order to be a successful lawyer, you need to know some business. And so I think that's. Um, a, a premise that we've been operating on. Um, and I think that it's an especially interesting time to be uh, working in this area because there are a number of, uh, I think, highly visible and important general trends in this space that I'd like to ask, ask you about a little bit and see if you have any insights or comments or suggestions or thoughts. Um, one very notable development um, that's been going on now for a couple of years but has really accelerated, I'd say, in the last, um, last few months is a question about what's the role and the purpose of the corporation itself. Um, I think, you know, students of mine that have taken corporations, or if you've taken corporations here, you, you, you probably remember the case of Dodge versus Ford Motor Company, which really asked, right, should corporations be run for shareholder profit, or are there other um, values or other uh, constituencies that we should be focusing in on? And I think in some ways, you know, corporate history is a bit of a sine wave and it rises and it drops you know, you know as, as time passes but I think we're clearly at uh, a crescendo moment where uh, a lot of policymakers and businesses are trying to rethink what exactly should a corporation be run for and is it okay to just run the corporation for shareholder uh, profit maximization or uh, you know for a variety of reasons do we really need to start thinking about some other groups that are also part of the corporate ecosystem so uh, I'm wondering if, if, if these are issues that catch your attention at the bank, and if so, um, how you think about this and whether you have um, you know, personal thoughts on, on what is the role and purpose of the corporation. Yeah, it's obviously um, an area that's getting a lot of um, currency um, for, for several different reasons. I, I took corporations here from um, Ernest Folk, who wrote the Delaware Corporation Code, so my basis of knowledge is uh, you know very traditional. Um, you know, corporation exists to maximize the return to shareholders, right? Um, and then, of course, over the past, really, I think because of the financial crisis, because of some other things that have happened in the past um, 20 years, whether it be Enron or, you know, other corporate scandals, um, and because I think government is not functioning as well as any of us would hope it would to address big problems, and therefore things like climate change and income inequality and other things that you know should be front of mind are not 
corporations are being asked to step up into, I'll call it a gap, um, and play a more active role. So, for example, um, after one of the mass shootings, and I can't remember which one it was, Andrew Ross Sorkin wrote a column in the New York Times saying, look, if Congress won't act um, to um, you know, enact stricter gun control measures, we should put pressure on those who are financing the manufacture of guns, i.e. banks. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, we were, along with our other partners in banking, were in the spotlight because we, you know, the, the question is, it's a, it's a perfectly legal business whether or not all aspects of it should be or not. So are we now in the position of saying, perfectly legal business, but we're not going to go there. Um, and is that, how does that interact with our duty to our shareholders? Delaware corporate law hasn't changed, right? Your duty is to your shareholders. Um, other, other states and other regimes have, uh, you know, public benefit corporations are a possibility even under Delaware law. Other states, Pennsylvania, for example, has a statute that lets you recognize the interests of other constituencies. Um, and so this debate has taken place about what is the role of the government, and we have um, institutional shareholders and activist shareholders who say, you know, we think you should, you know, not finance private prisons, um, you know, you should get out of guns, you should, you know, all the, the various things, and you should be more involved in, you know, helping us transition from fossil fuels and all of those things. So this has taken place under the umbrella of what we call ESG, um, environmental, social, governance um, issues, and we have lots of debates back and forth or, you know, conversations with big shareholders about what their interests are and what they want us to do in terms of these things. So the Business Roundtable, um, a couple months ago, put out, which is a Business Roundtable is a, a group that is comprised of large company CEOs. The CEOs are actually the members, so it's my boss and Jamie Dimon and the head of J&J &J and the head of Apple and, you know, that kind of um, collection of people, they put out this statement saying that they were, um, I think they've said redefining or restating the purpose of a corporation that was not just to maximize short-term shareholder value, but that the interests of other stakeholders should be taken into account. And by stakeholders, they meant employees, communities, um, society at large, you know, the environment, uh, you know, sort of all the things that might be touched by the way you do business. Um, and I think what that really meant was, look, they, they didn't change the law of Delaware or any other place where companies are incorporated, but I think what they, what they really were saying is, um, you know, in order, in order to maximize the long-term interests of shareholders, we really do have to take all these other things into account. You can't ignore the interests of your employees and say, in fact, I, I don't even know how you would do that kind of under the old model of a corporation, right? You have employees, suppose you're um, General Motors and you're thinking about how to maximize shareholder value. Well, you can't have your employees out on strike for six months, right? Or shareholder value is not maximized. So you gotta figure out what's the right way to treat employees? What, how do we intersect with the community that, 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 you know, where the plant is or where we sell vehicles? Um, so you really do have to take all those things into account when you think about the long-term value that you're creating. Um, and short-term thinking just ends up hurting you in the long run. 
um, because it's a little bit, like I said before, that thing that says not every dollar is a good dollar. You get the dollar in the short term, and in the long term, you're going to pay it back many times over because you've put yourself in a position where your reputation is harmed, you have enforcement actions against you, your employees are unhappy, your customers are unhappy, you've mistreated everyone along the way because you seized an opportunity you thought was in a short-term interest of the enterprise. And so it's really just a more holistic way of thinking about how you, how you maximize the, um, you know, the, the value of the enterprise and do it for the benefit of society. Um, those things can happen at the same time. They're not necessarily competing uh, narratives. And so we like to say, you know, you can maximize shareholder value and do the right things for all those other stakeholders. One other global question that I wanted to ask, and, and I've only got a couple more uh, that I want to you know, get through, so, so please feel free to, to um, start formulating your own questions, because I'd love to turn this into more of a, a conversation as well. Um, but I, 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 think, I do think there's another really important trend in, in, in this space that's been going on um, you know, for a while now, but really has accelerated over the last few years. Um, and that's uh, a, a bit of a shift in the balance of power in, in the world of corporate governance. And uh, you know, of course, uh, institutional investors have been, have been rising and growing for, for several decades now with mutual funds. But I think the move to uh, ETFs and uh, to, to, to more concentrated forms of intermediate ownership uh, has really started to lead to a situation where, you know, you might have three or four large entities that are responsible, say, for, for 25 or 30 percent of, of, of a corporation's stock. Um, and, and I'm wondering what, if anything, you've sort of seen that do to, to corporate governance itself, either at Bank of America or maybe from your time at Ford. Uh, and I, I'm not, you know, necessarily talking about just activist shareholders, although that's part of the phenomenon, too. But even, um, you know, uh, uh, supposedly neutral index investors, for example, can accumulate very large positions and serve in some really interesting swing positions in the world of governance. I mean, ha has, have you seen this uh, play out in, in, in different or interesting ways over the last several years? I have. Um, so Ford is not a great example of that because Ford had a two, uh, dual class ownership. So um, the Ford family... Um, Ford Motor Company went public in 1956. The Ford family, under the um, agreement to issue shares to the public, retains a 40% voting interest. So, you know, shareholder meetings were, you know, not real nail biters because they had 40% of the vote. And then employees owned a great deal of the stock and they're pretty loyal to the company. Um, but what has happened over, so you talk about concentration. Um, we just had, this is public, um, they've made a filing, Berkshire Hathaway now owns 10% of the stock of Bank of America. Um, there are a couple uh, large fund complexes that are approaching that. So you can end up with, you know, say 25% of Bank of America owned by two, three, four entities. Um, you know, we're talking about a you know, $300 billion uh, market cap um, company. So a lot of concentration, but even among folks who have 1% or 2% or whatever, that's a, still a lot of money. Um, and we spend a lot of time intersecting with them and talking to them about their interests, about our policies, about what we're doing um, to run the company under these the principles that I mentioned before of responsible growth and how we treat our employees and what our views are in the environment and what we fund and what we have declined to fund. Um, and they are increasingly active and interested. So we will have, um, we will offer 
to the top 100 shareholders that we have, face-to-face um, -face meetings twice a year to talk about, you know, kind of what's on their mind. And, you know, that gets you down to some folks with some, some pretty small interest, but we, we believe it's important. And it's not just, you know, some investor relations person. We have our lead independent director from the board. I go to the meetings. Our head of HR goes to the meetings to talk about human capital issues. Um, our, our head of investor relations does go, our corporate secretary. So we, we offer them a broad view, our ESG people, public policy, and it's a good dialogue. We've learned a lot from them. They've learned a lot about us. They want to know that they're investing their, their money, whether it be a pension fund, it's big, big players' pension funds, um, you know, or some of the in investor complexes. Um, you know, they want to know they're investing their money in a, in a company that they believe not only believe is on the right track, but believe that they're doing the right things. So it's a it's a big it's a it's a big source of um, influence. Yeah, I mean, you you really do get the sense I think that unless you proactively manage this engagement, you that you run the risk of getting to a situation where something arises and you need the support of a number of people. And if you haven't built that relationship up over time, it might be difficult, right, or too late right. to, to get at some of that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask one last question, and then I'll um, hand the mic over to the audience. Um, this is more of a um, uh, career advice question. You, you've you know, you know, uh, seen a lot of different aspects of, um, of, uh, of, of again, business law, um, government policy. Um, what, what advice would you have towards a, a second or third or first-year law student sitting in the audience here that might be interested in uh, building a career or thinking about building a career that um, could span one or more of these different areas that you've spent time with? So um, my advice is more universal, I think, because it's not particular to a, you know, being a general counsel, because I think this, that the advice I'm going to get, because as I said before, I wouldn't try to plan exactly what the steps are, so I think the skills that, or the activities I'm going to tell you about are, I would, you know, even if you end up being, God, you know, God forbid, a litigator, an ERISA lawyer, whatever it might be. Um, um, write, learn how to write clearly and concisely. I cannot tell you how important good writing is. Just I can't, I just can't overemphasize it. Um, and the lawyers who do well, and, and don't think that you don't need to write just because it's all an email. I've seen really poorly drafted emails. When I, Back when I was a young lawyer, you know, there were all these memos. People did long memos to the partner and all that. They had to be well written. But even a short email, if it's not well written, can just set things back. Just really learn how to think through each and every sentence, each and every word. Make sure it's not ambiguous. Make sure there's not aren't extra words. And practice, practice, practice writing. Um, practice um, standing up in front of people and talking. I, I worked with a. a famous old appellate lawyer named Barrett Prettyman when I was first got to Hogan and Hartson and his advice at the time was he said whenever somebody invited me to speak in front of a group I did it whether it was the nursing home or whatever the elementary school class just get comfortable you know being on your feet and talking to people because again no matter what situation you're in you're gonna have to go into a boardroom or whatever and make a presentation and don't make it relying on the PowerPoint learn how to make it even if the you know technology fails right um, I think always keep your integrity. Um, your reputation for honesty and candor is hard to easy to lose and hard to win back. 
Um, and so I think that just absolutely critical that people know that you're an honest broker. You're going to give them the right, um, the right information, not necessarily what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. Um, that's really important. And then, <clears throat> you know, learn your client's business. Um, listen to their earnings calls. Read their 10 Qs. Um, I can't tell you how many people come to try to pitch business and they say something that you're like, you really don't know anything about my business. You just want to tell me about yours, which is fine, but I'm going to pay a lot more attention if I feel like you've invested in learning a little something about what's important to me as opposed to having you come and tell me how great you are at something that I may not need. Um, so just uh, you know, learn your client's business. And that applies whether you're in-house in or not. I mean, it's really important for me my in, internal clients really want to know that I understand their business, not just that I'm a lawyer who's going to kind of give them legal advice, but I know what they're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis when they try and run their business and they try and run a P&L or they're trying to run an HR department. Here are the real practical issues, and I get it. I don't just sort of spout legal advice and walk away. Um, so those are some of the things that occur to me, but learn how to write really well. <laughs> in case you can't tell, that's my passion. So, so let me ask the audience, what's on your mind? I'm happy to run around and hand you the mic or just stand up and, you know, shout it out if you want. But what, what, what questions do you have listening to this, this conversation? Yeah. Uh, where do you see the legal profession going uh, from here for the next five, ten years? What kind of areas are opening up and so forth? Um... Yeah, my crystal ball gets a little cloudy sometimes, but I, I think um, privacy is um, going to be an area that uh, continues to develop because we have in Europe the GDPR, uh, General Data Protection Regulation. California has now has its version of, um, you know, some broad privacy laws. I think, you know, we can hope that Congress adopts a national privacy law here that kind of preempts the... 50 states and you know all the cities and everything so that we don't have a lot a multiplicity of of um, different regimes I, I I have said I this is only me not not necessarily my company I've said I almost don't care what the rules are just make them national have them be as tight and extreme as you want but just you know let's have one that we can go out and comply with um, so I think that's a that's a really important area and then artificial intelligence I don't even know quite where that's going or what it means, but there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, bringing big data, machine learning, artificial intelligence, you know, predicting behavior, um, and there are a lot of obviously legal issues embedded in that. Um, you know, those are the those are two that I think about a lot, um, and then just continuing the technological advance of things like blockchain. What is that going to mean? You know, all those kinds of new technologies that are coming along. So. I think it's the things that you see that are changing in society. Or Another one for us, which is a really interesting one, is what's going to happen with marijuana laws, for example. Um, we cannot bank. We cannot accept money from, from people who make it selling marijuana because it is an illegal activity. Now, everyone says, you know, it's legal in Colorado. There's this thing called the Supremacy Clause. It is illegal in all those places. And as a national bank, we cannot accept. So what do you do? Okay. There's a there's a somebody selling pot in the corner. You know they got a little store in the corner of a shopping center, with a that's owned by a guy who owns 800 shopping centers. Does that mean we can't take any of his money because money's fungible? Lots of issues around that. Um, that's particular banking, but um, 
you know, just um, financial crime is also another one where we see a, a lot of developments, sanctions law, um, money laundering, all that kind of stuff. Speaking of career transitions, I was just talking to a friend who, um, whose uh, husband is a, a lawyer, and uh, he just started a new job as corporate counsel. It's out in uh, California, and it's Mike Tyson's marijuana company. <laughs> I wonder where they're going to bank. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Other questions? So you mentioned when you first got to Bank of America, you didn't have much knowledge, uh, as much, I guess, as you do now on banking regulation. So I was wondering, in your day-to-day -day job today, how much is is banking regulation involved, and is any part of that um, kind of keeping track of where that regulation may go in the future and making sure your business is still amenable to that if it does change? Yeah, so the, look, a lot of what um, we do day-to-day -day has to do with banking regulation in particular because we are... A national bank, we are regulated by the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the Federal Reserve, the CFPB. Um, those organizations spend a lot of time in our, in, in the bank. They do examinations and audits, and and so and a lot of it is, you know, how are you complying with the regulation? Um, we have a very large compliance organization that fortunately doesn't report to me, so it reports up to risk. Uh, but we're, you know, we're the people who are responsible for sort of saying what the law is, what it means, what it requires, um, and then they, you know, try and make sure it's executed properly within the organization. And, you know, regulation changes a lot, particularly as you get, you know, you kind of had Dodd-Frank and the, um, you know, sort of the Obama administration with one set of rules coming out of Dodd-Frank, and now you have kind of some reexamination of some of those things. Volcker has just been changed a little bit. Um, living will laws have been changed a little bit. Um, and so... There's always going to be that pendulum that swings back and forth, and we have to make sure we're paying attention to it. Uh, you mentioned that you were working in a law firm, in a big law firm, and also as an in-house lawyer. Uh, in your opinion, what are the advantages and disadvantages of uh, working in a law firm and uh, as an in-house lawyer? Um, I think I already mentioned one that springs yeah. immediately to mind, which is I don't have to bill my hours, and I don't have to originate business. Um, it comes to me. <laughs> um, and, but, but look, I think there's a lot of advantages, um, particularly when you're young, to working in a law firm. You get a lot of that kind of mentoring, teaching. I mean, I worked very closely with some absolutely fantastic lawyers. Not that there aren't fantastic lawyers in-house, but I think it's more of the culture of a law firm where you know you're working for a partner you're a young associate their part of their job is to mentor you to teach you things I was fortunate enough in my law firm um, for so when I left the, the Justice Department um, in 1993 and before I went back into government for the eight years that I was there I was working for a guy named John Roberts who you know now is the Chief Justice so we would work on briefs together, and I'd talk about learning how to write. I mean, you know, I had someone who, you know, would sit me down, and we'd go through briefs, and we'd talk about how to make arguments. Um, and so there's a lot of advantage when you're young and learning to some of the skills um, to having those kinds of really bright lawyers around. I think being in-house, um, you feel more a part of an overall enterprise you know, you're sort of part of, not that a law firm isn't an enterprise, but a law firm can be a lot, you know, 
individual people with their practices kind of coming together collectively to form a law firm, whereas in a corporation you're kind of all rowing in the same direction, um, hopefully, um, and you're working together sort of for the good of the enterprise. Um, and so there's that sense of um, commonality that sometimes is lacking in a law firm. Um, and there's a continuity to it. I think one of the things that was frustrating about practice was, you know, you'd be working on a problem for a client. I, do, I was an appellate lawyer, and so you'd be working on a problem for a client, you, the case would be done, and you, you know, you'd never have, you, you may maybe go three years before you'd have another case for that client. And so you're, you're kind of continually working with different people, which can be good if you don't like the people you're working with. Um, you know, it's a short-term thing. But if you get it, so when you get into the overall enterprise, you really think you're, you're working with the same people over and over again on a common set of issues, and you form those deep relationships that I think are more lasting than sometimes um, law firm, you know, lawyer-client relationships are. Um, so I've heard that lawyers can be quite litigious, and uh, one of the things I was wondering is if in your day-to-day -day job, whether at Ford or at Bank of America, you encounter problems that are better solved through corporate strategy or negotiating as opposed to going down the litigation route. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all the ones that we're sued about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, were, uh, we are you know, far more likely to be defendant in lawsuit than we are to be a plaintiff. Um, so... Um, you know, we would we wish people would bring their problems to us in a strategic way, but we you know we it's our responsibility too to try to um, solve problems um, short of litigation, whether it be with a customer, an employee, um, or you know a commercial issue. Um, we had a case. I don't think I can tell all the details, but there was a, you know there was a significant issue involved, and we rather than um, you know, taking it all the way to litigation, we, we decided to change our policy and, you know, work out a settlement with the plaintiffs that, you know, where we said to them, okay, we're going to change this policy that you've complained about. Now let's talk about kind of how we resolve the lawsuit because we looked at it and we said, you know, this is not worth the fight. Um, so you look at each situation and you decide, you know, kind of what's worth the fight, what's not worth the fight, and then sometimes obviously it depends on the other side and how much they're insisting on to end the fight. Um, but I think you're, you know, you're right. Solving things through litigation is usually almo almost never the best way to resolve a situation. Yes. Uh, what do you see in, in a project in order to give a loan in this project? What did I see what? What do you see in a project? What do you review in a project in order to give a loan of this type of project? I don't know, maybe in an energy plant or a highway. Uh, I, I can't repeat. Maybe, I don't know, the guarantees. Because I don't know, but I understand the bank give a finance to the project, to different projects. Oh, project finance? Yeah. Um, so we have a, um, a large project finance um, operation, and, you know, it's important. And, again, we look at it through this environmental social governments lens that we have. You know, we're looking for project finance. For example, we do a lot of green bonds to finance, um, you know, 
whether it be solar, wind, whatever, you know, sort of alternatives to fossil fuel. So each project is viewed, you know, kind of, you have to look at it through the credit risk side, you have to look at it through kind of the reputational risk side of things, um, what the business is that we want to be in. So there's a, there's a broad analysis done for each of those things. And reputational risk is a really big one, actually, because we have this um, thing we call the Rep Risk Committee where if there's something that's likely to kind of be in the news or be, um, you know, potentially controversial, we'll take it through what we call the Reputational Risk Committee and, you know, there'll be a decision. So, for example, this isn't project finance necessarily, but vaping, okay, what are we, are we going to, Jewel comes to us for financing, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to be involved in that business or not involved in that business? You know, that kind of thing. Um, so there are a lot of considerations that go into each of those decisions. So. I think we have one right here in the front. Hi, David. Uh, I have a question. That um, may I know that one uh, may I know that during your daily work, do you usually have some contact with non-U.S. lawyers or non-U.S. legal counsels? Because I think you must have a lot of legal counsels in different regions. I do. So, yeah, so and may I know if you want to hire someone or uh, what's the most thing that you va you value the most, the, no matter the personality or technical skills? Yeah, yeah I have a lot of contact. Um, <coughs> so we have um, lawyers in London, um, some of whom are now moving to Dublin and Paris because of this thing that might happen someday, Brexit. <laughs> Uh, we'll see if it ever happens. A short story, when I first went to, um, when I first was with the bank and I first visited my team in London, it was early, it was spring 2016, and they brought me this big thick deck on what they were gonna do in the event of Brexit, and I thought, wow, that's really impressive. They're fully prepared for something that's never gonna happen. Um, and, but it's, of course, that deck's been sitting there for three years waiting for something to happen, but we have fully Brexited, as our CEO likes to say. We're, we're, I mean, you can't wait to see what they're gonna do, but all the, we have a huge contingent of lawyers in Hong Kong, um, in Brazil, and then scattered around other places in the world, Japan, Singapore, um, you know, Paris, as I said, a um, bunch of other places. But um, I have pretty routine contact with the senior lawyers in each of those places. Um, and we're, you know, we're looking for people who, um, all those skills that I said before, um, and with great integrity, because I think sometimes practicing in a quote-unquote remote location can be a lot, very challenging, because you might be a, a one person, like we have one lawyer in Milan, right? So that person might be under a lot more pressure to, you know, kind of do what the business wants. They sit there, she sits there all day long every day with the business team and there's no one else there to kind of back her up. So I think it's really important for me to have contact, for my senior lawyer in Europe to have contact so she knows there's a place to go. You're not just out there in an outpost by yourself, but she's got to have some fortitude to be, you know, to be willing to stand up and bring issues to our attention when they need to, uh, when they need to be raised. So I think it's challenging for, for those folks who are in, you know, kind of one-off places or two or three of them together in a place and they really need to be able to ra you know to raise the alarm on issues when they see them or even just a call and say hey I'm not sure how to deal with this you know do you have advice or can you talk to you know my business client about you know why I'm right about this or just to back them 
So um, it's, it's, it's kind of complex, but we try and really support them. Before we break, I'd like to thank um, uh, Julia and the Virginia Law and Business uh, Society for helping to organize this event. Um, thank you to all of you for joining us. And uh, David, thanks most of all to you. We really appreciate your willingness to give us your time and to, um, to share some of your, your lessons and wisdoms and experiences with us as well. So thank you very much. Thank you.